0: These are the moments that bind pages into stories. Fingers into a promise. A t-shirt full of crab apples strung together like Skokie summers. Perilla leaves into a fan covering our grandmother's mouth as she hollers from the screen door to call us in for supper. wringing hands into the votives, we whisper to the street lamp outside our door while waiting for Mommy to come home. That was a collection of snapshots from the childhood I shared with my little brother, Jason. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host, This week's podcast is the one that you've been waiting for. It's the one that is going to propel you out of your comfort zone and into finding purpose. I had the distinct pleasure and honor of chatting with my little brother, Jason Lee, and though I've known him all 39 years of his life, I learned so much about what it takes to buy that one-way ticket out of your comfort zone and into purpose. Whether you've just graduated from college, contemplating a big career move, or even just shifting something personally that has nothing to do with your professional life and you're just afraid of taking that giant leap towards what you know in your heart is going to bring you that fulfillment and challenge that you've been missing, Jason's story will inspire you. But before we hop to that conversation, I thought it would be best to provide you a backdrop, a peek into what shaped Jason and me growing up. A heads up, this is a longer episode, so you may have to listen to it in parts. And also, I strongly encourage you to check out the link below for some pretty adorable, irresistible photos of Jason and me. So without further ado, let's get into it. Come, Come look at all the sea creatures!' my brother exclaimed. He was perched precariously on a mossy green rock, hunched over a tide pool crawling with hermit crabs. I felt my nephew Liam shift gingerly beneath my hands as I held his shoulders. Jason was about four yards from us, and Liam's sweet voice danced its way up to my ears. "'Como? Can we go to Appa?' his still pudgy index finger swinging out like a tiny vector towards his father." I looked down at the floor of uneven stones, the carpet of slick green moss that peeked out from beneath our sneakers. Next time, galoshes, I thought to myself for the 107th time in the past five minutes. Yes, but Como needs to figure out the best way, I said, hoping my sing-song delivery masked the panic gurgling up my throat. While Liam's parents frolicked confidently between tide pools marveling at sea creatures, all I could think about was making sure my four-year-old nephew didn't slip and fall and crack his skull on one of those slippery green rocks. But Liam wasn't having it. He pried himself out from my kung fu grip, crouched down to gain his balance, and expertly stepped his way from pool to pool until he was bent over ooing and aahing with his father. Soon, Young Jung, my sister-in-law, joined them, and a trio of long shadows stretched protectively over a family of happy hermit crabs. Later that evening, at home, Liam toddled over to me as I scrolled through my phone. Let's do funny faces! Funny faces is Liam's code for TikTok filters, a relatively recent discovery of his. I smiled welcomingly, began to pull him up on the couch with me when Jason said, Can you ask nicely, please? It was a request, not a command like he was attempting to model the behavior he was encouraging, but Liam ignored him as he leaned back into the couch cushion. Jason repeated, "'Can you ask nicely, please?' with only the bare hint of steel entering his voice. "'Oh, it's okay,' I offered, as I positioned the phone out in front of us, swiping over to TikTok, but Jason rode right over me. "'Liam, can you ask nicely, please?' "'Como, can we please do funny faces?' his perfect face turning up to peer at me. Of course, I crowed as if he'd just offered me the chance to join him on an all-expense-paid cruise around the islands of Hawaii. Two days later, a hole tore open in my chest as Liam wrapped his small arms around my waist and chirped, bye Komo, I'll see you in Chicago. He pumped both his arms and legs to my brother's rental car, the new backpack he'd just been gifted jostling loosely against his rear. Bye, I said, sweeping my arm and a broad arc above my head. Bye, I said as Jason climbed into the driver's seat and shut the door. And one more time, for good measure, bye, doing my best to press back the grapefruit in my throat. My parents stood about 30 feet in front of me, Amma waving at the car, my father standing silently with his hands tucked inside his pockets. And just like that, they were gone. It struck me that this was the scene I'd played out in my head many years ago in 2015, when Jason and Young Jung moved out of my apartment. I'd just made partner, and Jason was preparing to begin grad school. As Jason and his bride packed what little they had into boxes destined for Champaign, Illinois, a crystal ball came into focus. And in it, I could see that Jason would one day create a miniature version of himself while living far, far away, and in that not-too-distant future, I would have to figure out how not to sob every time his car drove off, as I spread all five fingers of my hand into the air and waved goodbye. Just before her 30th birthday, Amma had a strange dream— She was out in the yard in front of a home she didn't recognize, somewhere in the province of Gyeonggi-do, where her parents lived when she was in nursing school. She was squatting over the ground, sunlight oozing down the nape of her neck like a thick braid of honey as she dug her bare hands into the black soil. She didn't know what she was digging for, only that the dirt was somehow still cool despite how hot a day it was. Before long, though, her fingers felt something cold and slippery. Gripping it with both hands, she heaved back with all her weight. She fell on her rear and looked down at what she held, an enormous silver pike. Amid her shock, she cradled the live fish to her ribs, wondering how it survived being buried. Wriggling and kicking fiercely, its sterling body shimmered like running water in her arms. A few weeks later, Amma found out she was pregnant with me. Almost three years later, she had another strange dream. This time, she was back in Seoul. Instead of digging through the soil, she was pulling on the thick leaves of an arrowroot. The starchy, bittersweet flesh was one of her favorite snacks. But as she pulled, the ground crumbled, and a vast, dark cavern opened up beneath her like the mouth of a giant whale. Peering in, she wondered at how a space so black and empty could hold an arrowroot. Her eyes adjusted to the dimness. All of a sudden, she spied the curling striped tail of a tiger. It then dawned on her that she'd stumbled onto a tiger's den. Panicking, she started to run as fast as she could towards home. But somehow the tiger crawled up out of the cave and lurched towards her, following at her heels. She wasn't fast enough, and eventually the tiger leapt onto her back. But instead of tearing her flesh, the tiger cried, Umma, Umma, Umma. Umma carried the tiger on her back all the way home, right past the threshold of her front door. She found out days later that she was pregnant with my brother Jason. Jason came into this world with about as much fanfare as is typical in a Korean household. His name is the marriage of my father's name, Jay and my mother's name, Son, Jason. He was the first-born son of the first-born son, thus my grandmother, i e. my father's mother, booked a one-way ticket to Chicago and moved in with us. She raised us both for the next ten years, but Jason was the undoubted Fuji apple of her eye. I remember talking with our cousin Joy many, many years later when my grandmother passed away. The first and only thing she said about Harmonie was this: She loved Jason so much. My little brother and I had a pretty normal childhood. Growing up, having a baby brother meant lots of different things. When he was two and I was five, it meant avoiding him at all costs. He could barely talk and spent most of his time pooping and biting anything that made him mad, including his older sister. When he was four and I was seven, it meant that in lieu of my two imaginary friends, yep, I had two, I had a built-in real-life guaranteed companion for hide-and-seek, tag, Barbie, and dress-up. When he was 7 and I was 10, it meant that I had to peel him off like an old band-aid. It was way uncool to have a baby brother tagging along while I hung out at the park, went bike riding with my friends, or played spin the bottle with the popular kids at school. And when he was 13 and I was 16, it meant that we would basically fight all the time over who had to make the rice or do the dishes, who would man the remote, or whose turn it was to take out the garbage. And when he was in high school and I was in college, it meant chauffeuring him everywhere and one upping him during our endless games of Name That Movie. Despite my ever evolving role as Big Sister or Nuna, there were a few constants throughout our childhood, things that never really changed no matter how old we were. At two or 22 years old, as my grandmother explained to me, I was his Nuna and he was my Tongseng. He was my charge my ward that meant sneaking him bottles when my mother wasn't looking removing the chewy casing from the sausages my grandmother prepared for lunchtime picnics making sure that nobody picked on him too much at school reading to him into the wee hours of the morning when my mother had to work the night shift i am intimately familiar with the daily rituals of both the bernstein bears and one curious george and of course intervening when i felt my parents were being unreasonable with him Perhaps it was that pernicious night shift, those evenings my mother would leave for work at around 3 p.m. and return after midnight, exhausted and carrying the unwelcome sterile scent of the hospital into our home. My grandmother wasn't always with us. She'd often take leaves to go to South Korea, her absence itself a wound to Jason. One afternoon, after Jason and I had been particularly unruly, enough to make Alma regret ever having a uterus, she packed up a suitcase, put on her nursing uniform, and walked out the screen door of our Skokie house for work, threatening to never return home again because she was tired of being our mother. I was maybe seven, Jason four. Now I'm not a parent, so I won't make the mistake of judging my mother's methods, but I will say it left a permanent mark. For the rest of our lives, there lingered the fear that Mommy would walk out that door during the light of day and disappear into her brown Nissan Sentra, failing to return even when the day grew dark and my eyes would eclipse the Bernstein Bears' latest misadventures. While my mother toiled away at the hospital, Jason would spend hours on the brink of those big, fat tears I grew to hate. I felt hands fluttering around my chest, The thick pages of Jason's worn little books pressing up against my neck while I pretended to read out loud. My cheeks aching at the pretense that of course everything would be okay, that life was as carefree as a little monkey dangling from the maple tree in our backyard. But inside, I was already planning how I would pack lunches for both Daddy and Jason by myself if Mommy never came home. Who knows how it happened? Maybe it's just the inevitable inheritance of older sisterhood or some cultural genome appertinent to Nunnimship. But from a very early age, my heart was grafted in front of Jason's so that whenever and in whatever shape life came at him, it would have to get past me first. Jason always joked that I was the golden child of the family. I did well in school, never drank or did drugs, and graduated at the top of my class in both high school and college. I ended up going to law school and landed a pretty good job, got married, and bought a house with a 60-inch large-screen TV, a two-car garage, and cable. Jason's path wasn't as smooth, and there were plenty of required pit stops aimed at improving report cards, repairing broken bones, and eradicating bad influences, My parents were always worried that despite their efforts, Jason would eventually veer off the side of the road and head straight towards certain doom, mediocrity. But as is often the case, things weren't as they seemed. In 2013, the door to my quiet suburban house was flung open and my brother was given front row seats to the utter failure that was my domestic life. Divorce soon followed, and before I knew it, I was asking him and his wife to be my new roommates. At the age of 34, it was the first time in my entire life that I'd ever lived alone. And although I still tell people that the reason I invited Jason and his wife to move in with me was because I was I am, afraid of the dark, the truth was I knew I'd be excruciatingly lonely and depressed. Who better to turn to than my best friend? Jason claims that my offer to come live with me when I moved out saved him. He had just permanently moved back to the States, bringing with him a young new wife and only the foggiest blueprint for their future. But the truth is, they saved me. They taught me how to organize my wardrobe, hang up my photos, throw a party, change the sheets, cook an entire meal for two, stack Tupperware, and make friends. When I finally started dating again, I tried on men like pairs of shoes, discarding the vast majority of them at the store. Those that made it home with me almost never lasted longer than a couple of brief spells around the block. It occurred to me that my biggest problem with men was not a fear of commitment, a popular scapegoat for divorcees, but that I didn't respect any of them. At some point, I'd learned that men, particularly the men in my life, required protection above all things. How do you look up to the ones you are carrying when you are too busy making sure their feet never touch the ground? But as I watched my brother and his new wife hurtle past their own set of firsts, I would think to myself that I was somehow shrinking, that I was getting younger and more juvenile as Jason was getting bigger and more adulty. Despite the occasional spat, Jason and Young Jung seemed to have the love thing well handled, all of a sudden, questions like, how can I tell whether he likes me, and when do I know he's my boyfriend, and why the fuck won't he text me back already, became a refrain in our apartment. I sought out my brother's advice on a subject I had once considered myself an expert in. And while he schooled me on the finer points of proper texting etiquette and management with the opposite sex... I learned how to let my guard down just enough to fall in love with a man who deserves every last shred of the respect I'd been hoarding since I was charged with reading my baby brother to sleep. When my brother got the news that he'd been offered a full-time position at one of the largest and most prestigious corporations on the planet, it was sort of like a mini earthquake in the Lee household. Foundations were shifting beneath our feet as my parents scrambled to call every living human related to us and bragged about how their only son managed to procure a job a year before he'd even matriculated from grad school. And I finally got to pass the golden mantle to my little brother. I was elated proud, excited, relieved, every good emotion one would expect when my brother got a job. But as with a lot of good things, it came laced with a bit of not-so-good. He would be moving to Seattle after graduation, where he and Y.J. would set up house for the indefinite future. Although I always knew that my brother's future wouldn't be bolted next to mine, I had assumed that I would get to watch his life play out from the wings not from across the country. Mostly though, I always envisioned myself being in the thick of things when he and YJ had kids. Our aunties, particularly my mom's youngest sister, were kind of like second mothers to Jason and me, and I guess I'd always thought I'd be close by to fill the same role. Sure, I can do a lot of things from where I am. Amazon Prime provides an excellent vehicle for nephew-niece spoilage. But as I've tried to show Jason many times, Especially during the 17 months right after my divorce. It's those small things. Those mundane, everyday moments. Like the first time his son says the F word. The first time he spits out his kimchi. The first time he comes home to see YJ singing along with Kermit and his son. The first time he agonizes over his son's report card and wonders, did I do good enough? The first time his mini-me cracks open a bright yellow book with a curious chimp on the cover. The first time he picks him off the floor so that his feet never touch the ground, the first time they count the number of hermit crabs zigzagging across the lip of a shimmering pool. These are the moments that bind pages into stories, fingers into a promise, a t-shirt full of crab apples strung together like skoky summers, perilla leaves into a fan covering our grandmother's mouth as she hollers from the screen door to call us in for supper, ringing hands into the votives we whisper to the street lamp outside our door while waiting for mommy to come home these are the things that have a tendency to slip by and become yesterday's rubbish if someone isn't there to collect them these are the things i write down today as i watch my little brother disappear around the corner one more time so is this your first time being on a podcast Yes, this is definitely the first
1: time being on a podcast.
0: Is this your first time being questioned?
1: Yes, and (laughs) it's quite intimidating. (laughs) Yeah, uh, let's just say that you had mentioned earlier uh, during my trip about bad experiences on podcasts, and that has been weighing on my mind. Uh, for days, so. no,
0: but bad experiences are almost always the the fault of the of the podcast host. It's almost never the guest, ah, so I okay. wouldn't worry about that. I'm much more on uh, on deck than you are. <laughs> so I actually wanted to talk a lot about your evolution as a content creator, especially because you started content creation long before the phrase "content creator" even really was used. As frequently as it is today. But before we get to that, I think it makes sense to start pretty much in the beginning. And, you know, obviously I don't mean when you were born, although that might be a fun conversation for a different kind of podcast. I thought it would be helpful to start where a lot of people begin to question who they are, what they want to do with their lives, what their purpose is, and you kind of facing that future that is so intimidating, and that would be in college. So I know you went to University of Illinois, but instead of Urbana, which is where I went to college, you went to Chicago. Can you take us back to that time, and why did you decide to go to UIC? What did you study at UIC, and and why did you choose that course of study?
1: Sure. So... You know, this is kind of a time machine moment where I have to go back, Um, but my original sort of thought in going to the University of Illinois in Chicago was twofold. Number one, it kept me in Chicago, which was a big deal for me at the time because I did have a very close association with the city. I had a lot of friends nearby, family, which was important at the time, and as far as what I chose to study... Frankly I really didn't have a very strong direction is what I would maybe say is the is the best way to describe it. That said, I chose a major that was probably the most general, so I chose basically a general psychology degree mainly because that was at the time the only academic material that I could digest and feel as though that, you know, was somewhat of interest. I completed the degree and I honestly kind of felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do with that either. And that said, um, I did have a lot of soul searching after graduation and figuring out what I wanted to do because the degree was so general that it didn't really give a lot of insights into these are the things that you can do from a career standpoint uh, thereafter. So I was left really kind of shaking my head in terms of not necessarily having a career path upon graduation. And rather than trying to go back into school directly, which I'll be honest, was kind of tempting, I decided to take on some odd jobs here and there and ultimately made the decision to move to Seoul, South Korea, kind of on a whim, to be quite honest with you, to be a teacher there teaching the English language to Korean native students, which in retrospect was kind of out of nowhere type decision. but. I think it was mainly driven with the, let's just say, the idea of learning more about who I am and putting myself in a place where I wasn't as familiar. Chicago was great, but I got a little bit too close to it.
0: So I want to go back to your decision to study what you described as sort of like a general kind of course of study that you were just interested in. It sounds to me like you didn't engage in any type of strategic study of hey, is this the major that's going to get me the best job? Is this the course that's going to set me on my way to a lucrative or at least gainful employment? It was more just, this is what I'm interested in, and that's what I'm going to do? Exactly. I had
1: no thought around what this would lead to uh, in terms of future before making the decision. Probably not the smartest thing to do, but at the time, I was very focused on doing something that I found at least interesting, and that trumped any sort of potential future career options at the time. Not something I would recommend, you know, especially as someone who's in HR now, I would not do that again. But at the time, just where I was in terms of my personal growth, I really cared more about doing something academically that I found interesting, more than going in a direction that may have had more clear career paths Mm. upon graduation.
0: I find that so interesting that you wouldn't recommend that for young people today because that's very similar to what I did. I went into college and I was like, I don't really care what my job is going to be at the other end of this. I just want to study English because I love literature. I love writing. I love reading so much. And and this is the area of study that resonates with me the most, other than music, which, as you know, I was not allowed to major in. <laughs> so <laughs> this English was sort of my second choice. And in retrospect, I don't know if I would say I'd go back and be a little bit more surgical about my choice in study. Do you think that if you had done what I think you did later on in your you know, schooling, which we'll talk about, do you think that your career would have taken a similar path to what it has, just a little bit more accelerated?
1: It's a good question. I don't want to completely write off saying, hey, I would do a 180 and only go in a direction that had very concrete career paths if I could take a time machine back to undergrad, I would say everything in moderation there. you know, I think that a certain amount of thought is important to be put there. Now, whether or not it would have accelerated me, I think at the time, there are just certain components of where I was mentally, mainly just not necessarily understanding what I wanted to do, that I wouldn't be able to say with any sense of surety that it would have accelerated any path towards a firmer career path than what I had uh, up to this point, and you know, I don't think that's necessarily the the end goal of what I would say is the suggestion of not necessarily following that path. It's more just being a little bit more thoughtful around the environment around you, especially currently it's it's a bit different than what it was back when it, when I was an undergrad, and I think it just is a good, balanced approach that I would more recommend, not necessarily saying you should have always a career path as a final sort of I guess, destination already planned out prior to making a decision.
0: It's just being more considerate and thoughtful and intentional about it. Exactly. And um, it doesn't mean that you have
1: to do that. But I think that has to be part of the equation at this point.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to move next to what seems like a big chapter in your life, which is this decision to go to Korea, which I think for us is, is probably... A smaller decision than for some because you and I had already been to Korea multiple times at that point. But still, I don't want to understate its significance. And in particular, in light of what you described as the reason you stayed in Chicago, which was the familiarity, your family was right there. I remember you came home every weekend to do right. your laundry. Your friends lived with you for many, many years. How important was that, at least during those years in college, to have that sort of home base? and what did it feel like to make that decision to deliberately step away from that
1: i mean it felt great i mean having close family and friends nearby i think is the default go to for most and it was definitely kind of reassuring to have that safety net in many ways and it was a lot of fun and it was great and it is such a interesting thing to look back on because what kept me here was also ultimately kind of the reasoning for kind of leaving. And it took about two years after graduating from undergrad, working in a job that I did not like. And having those close comforts were fantastic, but it started morphing into this thought around, hey, how much am I actually learning and experiencing different things when I know everything that I'm going to do every single day. I'm going to see the same people. I'm going to go back home, do my laundry, everything like that. And what was comforting in the beginning kind of turned into this splinter in my brain around, well, how long am I going to do that? And what am I missing out on in terms of just experiencing life? Undergrad was kind of slow, but when you graduate, things go really fast. And it made me kind of feel like this window of exploration was closing quickly. And ironically, that was the primary sort of impetus for making a pretty rash decision and getting a one-way ticket to South Korea. And I remember doing it, and I remember being absolutely terrified. Uh, I remember sitting on the plane thinking, is this just the worst decision I've ever made? But it took no more than, I'd say, a week in-country and I quickly realized this was one of the most important decisions I've ever made because everything was so different. Yes, I've been to Korea back you know, when we were um, a lot younger, yeah. uh, but the idea that, that, that I was there indefinitely really put an entire different perspective on it. And I have to say, it, it really did kind of push me immediately in this frame of, okay, now I can actually try stuff that I didn't necessarily realize that I was holding back on while living in Chicago. And it's kind of a weird thing, because all of those things, friends, family, they're great. But in a way, they were kind of holding me back Mm -hmm. in terms of just the way that I thought, things that I wanted to try and do. And Korea really immediately lifted those chains. It was terrifying, but liberating at the same time.
0: Do you think that you would have achieved the same sort of... Whether you call it catharsis or blank slate, new chapter, if you had decided, I'm going to buy a one way ticket to Austin, Texas, like, why did it have to be so rash? Like, does it have to necessarily be across the world in order to achieve what you were looking for?
1: It's such a good question. And now that I've kind of had the opportunity to look back, the answer is no, you do not need to make something as extreme. I think I was at the time just a person that had these extreme sort of thoughts around, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it all the way. But, you know, I since I've come back uh, for other reasons, I've moved to locations like Arizona. I lived in Seattle for the past six years, and I still get that feeling. Every time I move to a different location, even though it's quite closer than a country like South Korea, I, I still have that immediate feeling of, okay, now what am I going to try now that I'm out here? I think the common denominator has to be, you don't really have a lot of folks that you know. And I think if you can achieve that, it doesn't matter where you go. I even felt that at the University of Illinois, which was just a two-hour drive from my parents' house.
0: And this is after you got back from Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the answer is, you definitely don't need to go that extreme. I think so long as you have an environment that's new to you and you don't have those luxury comforts nearby, I think that's really the formula for what could provide a perspective that may be difficult to have if you do have those comforts you know, right next to you.
0: Let's go back to the one-way ticket. Do you think it would have had the same effect if you had bought a round-trip ticket with a date certain that you knew you would be coming home?
1: I remember going through the ticketing purchase <laughs> process and, and, and really trying to figure out, well, do I have a return date? And I did to kind of maybe reinforce that extreme nature that I had at the time. I wanted to eliminate any of that, okay, well, this is temporary. I know I'm coming back in just you know, six months or something like that. No safety net. No safety net, which for me at the time, I think was necessary. In order for me to make the plunge, I really needed that no lifeline, you know, no safety cord that was connected for me to be able to do it. So again, not necessarily something that is required, but for me at the time, I was intentional about not having a return date. Mm
0: -hmm. What was your expectation when you booked that ticket? What did you think would happen once you landed in Korea? I
1: thought that I'd be there for six months. Personally, I thought that I would not enjoy it because I'm an introvert and the thought of being up front in front of kids that don't know how to speak English every day, teaching classes was probably the most intimidating job description that I could have had. But I thought, hey, I'll try it for six months. It'll be a fun experience, something that I could cross off a list of things that I said that you know I, I've done in life and that I'd return and I'd probably go back to grad school or something like that. So that was my initial sort of I guess, comforting way of saying, hey, just have fun with this. And honestly, I thought that I'd probably not enjoy it. And I could almost just make a joke out of it, kind of save myself the embarrassment when people ask, hey, why'd you do that? I just, oh, I just wanted to give it a try. And I was already creating these like, explanations of what it would be like when I made my sad return back and be like, well, that was kind of dumb. You know? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so honestly, that was, that was what was going through my head initially in terms of expectations.
0: Just take us back a little bit. When you decided to go to Korea, it wasn't literally you land in Korea with nothing to do. It sounds like you already had a job lined up and you know perhaps connected with some company that would help you at least have something to do while you were there.
1: So I had a position that was contingent on a few factors so i had done a preliminary virtual interview uh, with a company that was interested in hiring me but it required that i would be able to be in country at a certain date and that i would have to pass their training course and obviously obtaining a visa to be able to work there it was quite intimidating on the airplane because i had no idea what this training entailed Mm. So if that training didn't go well, I would really be returning without a work visa and basically the biggest failure in in my (laughs) eyes of what what this would be. Uh, So there was a lot of pressure just to make sure that I took it seriously early on. So I got in, I had maybe a few days just to get settled in, and I had to check into this big building headquarters with, I think... 8 to 10 other people that were doing the training with me.
0: And that job was to teach children English?
1: It was to teach elementary school students and middle school students the English language in varying degrees of, uh, let's just say, uh, ability. So talking fresh kids that didn't know anything all the way up to folks that were studying for their high school exam which they were pretty advanced.
0: So you walked into this situation without any real clear guarantees of success. In fact, you were already creating narratives in your head for explaining what you know some might view as a failure because you came home after six months without furthering your career, without really taking any steps forward in a traditional career path. Exactly. I... Definitely did not have a secure
1: position. I was even reading on forums of these nightmare stories of people going out there on these contingent offers, training going awful, not being given an offer, and having to return pretty abruptly because, I mean, as an American, I had maybe three months that I could do as like a tourist visa at max. And after that, I would be forced to return. But to me, it was more around just having to face... Parents and just being like, okay, what happened there, you know? Mm. Uh, and obviously my friends, uh, because you know we had this big send off. Oh, you know, you're going to go do this. Uh, so there, there was a lot of pressure in terms of just seeing if this was actually going to be a thing. But you know, it all worked out.
0: Well, before we talk about how it all worked out, I want to ask you a little bit more about that pressure you referred to by your parents. What was the situation? At home, what was the situation between you and, and your parents, and what sort of pressure did you feel from them, whether it was imagined or overt?
1: Yeah, and you know, I don't know if you remember, but Amma um, was very not for me going. You know, she, she felt as though that the job that I was at at the time was a good one. Which you hated, though. I hated it. I loathed it. I, I could not stand it. If anything, that was a major driver to to just be like. I got to just try something different.
0: But your parents wanted you to stay in that job, even though they know you hated it?
1: Yes, because it provided a stable salary. Honestly, for an undergrad with a general psychology degree, it was a pretty good job. Definitely paid the bills. And I think much to just the Korean sort of parenting kind of one-on-one book that they have is, hey, just thug it out, you know, And, and that's just what life is and just do that. So. To abruptly quit and say that I bought a one-way ticket to Korea on a contingent offer is probably the biggest sort of nightmare scenario as a parent. And I can understand that now. So that just kind of amped up the pressure around, if I screw this up, then it's just going to really kind of materialize this nightmare for my mom. That was a big weighing factor. And she was ultimately super supportive because she was excited for me in the sense that I would be trying something different. But I think the realities were heavy on her mind. And obviously, that puts it on my mind, too.
0: So what was your plan then? If you did end up coming back, whether it's in three months or six months, would you just go back to that job that you hated?
1: No, I don't think I could (laughs) could return to that job. Um, I think at, at that point, I would have just had to have reset Honestly, if I'm going to be transparent, I probably would have just taken that, you know what, I'm going to go back to school and jumped into whatever sort of major that would just take me as a way to say, I'm continuing in something, you know, um, not necessarily with the plan behind it again. I would have probably just jumped at the first opportunity to just get back into something that was, quote unquote, respectable within the, the, the social norms of where I'm at in
0: my life. So you buy this one-way ticket Across the globe, knowing that your mom is not exactly excited about it because she's worried that you're giving up a pretty stable job, as you say, you don't even have a real offer. It's contingent upon a training you've read about saying people will have totally failed and have to abruptly turn back around. You know that a visitor's visa is only good for three months. And even in your own head, you're thinking you're going to come back in six months, whatever happens. How long did you actually end up staying in Korea?
1: I actually ended up staying five and a half years, close to six years, which is totally shocking just to even say right now because... Man, that was definitely not the expectation when I was sitting on the airplane <laughs> when I was on the way there.
0: So how did we go from I'm going to come back home in 6 months to staying for 5 years? And I will say as your sister, this is not exciting for me either.
1: <laughs> well, um happy to say that I passed the training, so I think that was the first sort of requirement. And I think the thing that really surprised me the most and what I would say kept me there as long as it did, well, there's a variety of factors, but I think the main thing that kept me there was how much I enjoyed the job, which was surprising because I'd mentioned earlier I was such an introvert and I still am. So I thought it would be extremely challenging and something that I would dread doing on a daily basis. But surprisingly, the job was so fun. And I learned so much about myself in terms of the things that I thought that I wouldn't enjoy that I actually really enjoyed and that I was surprisingly good at. And it made staying there a lot more appealing because I felt like I was getting some sort of growth from a career standpoint that I never experienced before. Because jobs up to that point was just to pay the bills and kind of get by. This was the first position that I felt like Man, I'm developing as a person. I'm learning all these different skills, and I'm having such a connection in terms of what I'm doing and seeing that translate into something that felt so great. That was the surprising thing that kind of kept me there. I mean, sure, it was a lot of fun. I met so many great people, and just being in a different place, especially as rad as Seoul, there's so many things that you can do. But if I were to really pinpoint what kept me there, it had to have been the job. Because if I didn't like it, I wouldn't have stayed.
0: And how important was that for you at that time in your life to discover, somewhat contrary to what Umma had implied, there is a job out there that is a job that pays you money steadily, a stable career, at least relatively speaking, that you actually can enjoy. I mean... Was there some level of skepticism that that even existed at that point? I mean,
1: it it sounded like a fantasy. You know, it sounded like things that you kind of told kids kind of growing up, hey, just, you know, do what you love and, and things like that. And I think the first two years out of undergrad really put a very strong negative criticism around that sort of thought. And I thought it was just total BS. Like, no, life is just about doing something to get by and the weekends is what you live for and that's it. So when I kind of stumbled on this position that I enjoyed so much and it actually paid the bills simultaneously, you know, it was a game changer, you know. And 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 really I think that translates into why I stayed as long as I did because it was such a fantastic experience to just be so fulfilled at the end of the day and be excited to go to work in the morning. And to really kind of be intentional about what I was doing and what I wanted to do thereafter while still being able to be the responsible person in terms of being able to pay my rent and, and you know, obviously just be financially stable. So it was kind of this shocker because I truly didn't believe that necessarily existed. I always thought it was going to be, you know, you have to pick one or the other. You're either gonna do something that you really enjoy, but it's gonna be more of a hobby and you're not gonna be able to really do anything with it financially. Or you do what most people do, which your parents tell you all the time is, hey, nobody likes their job. You just do it and you climb that ladder as painful as it is, and over time you'll get numb to it and you'll have money and you'll be all good because you could use that money to go do something that you want to do on your free time. So it was very much this kind of unexpected revelation that landed on my lap because I did not expect that going in. In fact, I expected the opposite. So it was a very, very nice kind of surprise uh, when it comes to, let's just say, the way that that position turned
0: out. Well, it sounds like it was more than a nice surprise. It was, a, like you said, a game changer. Right. It completely altered your perspective on what careers could be.
1: It, it was such a important sort of step in terms of where I went after that and what I was very committed to maintaining, uh, if I could, thereafter. Because the thought of even going back to what was the traditional, find just a job, just to, I guess, get by, and even if it pays uh, a good amount of money, was almost out of the question, you know, unless I was just absolutely desperate. But that was now the new standard that I had in terms of the way that I wanted to proceed with my career to try and align it to where it would give me uh, the, uh, the means to survive, but also a much more meaningful sort of existence in terms of how I spent majority of my time on this planet. You know? So that, that was a major, major takeaway from that.
0: So tell us a little bit, and we don't have to go into great detail because I don't think it really matters in the grand scheme of things, but what is it about this job that you had in Korea that you found so fulfilling, that you found so purposeful and enjoyable? So when I think back on it, when you're in a classroom, what's great about it is
1: that you do have a certain amount of autonomy uh, that... Other positions didn't necessarily offer me. And even though the material could be all organized for you and you're more of an executioner of that material, the way that you go about it is your own. And having that ownership and that, let's just say, holistic approach to being able to have a class of students that are new, work with them throughout the semester, and see them progress mainly through your execution. Having that end-to-end process was a big deal for me because most jobs that I had, I'd have maybe a segment of it and that was it. So, you know, it's like kind of being on an assembly line where, you know, you have one component that you do every day, gets a little bit mind-numbing after a while. But with teaching, it gives you the opportunity to really have these like kind of chunks of wood in the beginning and you're carved out whatever sort of sculpture at the end of it And that sort of ownership really was, I think, a big deal in terms of job satisfaction. It made it a lot more difficult. And I think the challenge is that each class is different. So you can't be one-dimensional about it. But I think that also kind of leads to a certain amount of that satisfaction. If it's too simple, you get bored with it really quickly. What was great about teaching was that there was just a new sort of challenge every three months, because they did three-month increments, and that made it really fresh in terms of, okay, now I can try something different. Now I can experience a different class. And obviously, once you start seeing the results, you know, these children were incredibly smart. And when you start seeing the results of what you've worked really hard uh, to really kind of implant in them when it comes to language... It's it's so rewarding, you know, and to have that, I think, is rare these days in, in a lot of jobs. You don't see it. Assembly person doesn't see the end product. They see the one piece over and over and over again. But I had the luxury of being able to see how they progressed. And um, that, that was a big takeaway for me.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about logistics here, because I think sometimes those sort of details Are swept under the rug as unimportant. But a lot of times, the thing that prevents people from doing what you described is well, that's all good and fine, you know, but I didn't have parents who could pay for a one way ticket to Korea or even to Austin, Texas, or I didn't have a cushy amount of money to set me up. Did you have to pay for a hotel? Like, where did you stay? Like, take us a little bit through how did you fund this decision? Because a lot of times people say, I don't have the funding to make this kind of rash decision.
1: Yeah. And I think that's such a good point because I'm very careful about the way that I explain my experience and I'm extremely careful about just blanket recommending it for everyone because I think it's a very unfair expectation to say, oh, you should travel, or, oh, people who haven't traveled, they haven't experienced. It's really unfair. And I have had so many privileges that have allowed me to do this that many people don't have. Now, my personal sort of way about, from a logistic standpoint about doing this, the first thing I knew that I needed to do was to save up a certain amount of money, and i remember saving as much as i could i was living with my parents and i saved up probably 3 months of my salary before kind of making the official decision to to do this that gave me enough money to purchase my ticket there and to give me that 3 month sort of elbow room should things go wrong 3 months was what i had to financially survive out there and that also kind of gave me the I guess, the, the green light to go ahead and quit. That was actually really hard because, again, things are going great. I've got this career. And, um, you know, I remember just having a very difficult time of, of saying I'm going to quit. But I think that was a major part of kind of going full throttle on this decision. And I remember telling my boss that, hey, I'm giving my two weeks. And he was shocked. He's like, what are you talking about? Because, you know, we had a great relationship. I was doing well there. And it, <laughs> I remember, but going into the parking lot that day, I felt like, okay, this is it. This is really going to happen. And I think from a logistic standpoint, that was a hurdle that I had to do. But I didn't do it until I had a certain amount of financial security behind it. I had the privilege of having family in Korea to help me kind of navigate just where to go, place that I could get a meal, sleep there if I needed to. I tried my best not to lean on that as much as I could, but that definitely was a privilege. You know, had I gone somewhere like Germany, I I wouldn't know anybody. I wouldn't know the language. Uh, Another privilege is I knew the language to a certain extent to get by, which I think was a big part of this as well. So I had a lot of things in my favor to help me be a lot more successful in that earlier stage of getting there, making sure that I had a support network that, God forbid, if I was robbed, which my mom kept telling me I'm going to get robbed in like the subway or something, I had a support network that I would be able to uh, kind of fall back on, which again, I recognize not everyone has. And that's why I'm very careful again, not to say that, oh, you know, if you don't do this, you know, you're not exploring your true Best self, or anything like that, I kind of take offense to that because that's not a fair expectation for everybody. Everybody has their own time. I think that there are excuses out there that I definitely made for myself that delayed the decision. You know, I don't have enough money right now, or, ah, you know, my job's going okay. Maybe I'll, and, you know, those are all things that kind of were more safety measures for making what was a very difficult decision. That I think is a different category. I, I think there are some hard things that, if you don't have, makes it logistically very difficult to do, I was privileged enough to have these opportunities and the support network behind me to make it happen. And when I did eventually overcome those other excuses that I was making for myself, it really helped drive this decision in the right way. Uh, but that's that's something I do think back on. And, and again, why I'm extra careful, because you know you see a lot of people out there right now saying, oh, you know, you haven't lived until you've done something like this. And it's really unfair. So I want to just be very careful about what my experience was and whether or not it makes sense for you as an individual. And that's something that you really need to do a lot of thought around and whether or not you have those privileges or that support network behind you. Because it can make it a lot more difficult if you
0: don't. So I want to talk a little bit about that support network and and by this, it's not kind of veering away from the practical support network or the practicalities of, of logistics. And as much as you say you had these opportunities and privileges at the same time, you did not actually rely on a tidy fund of money that was given to you at graduation or you did not have an apartment waiting for you that somebody else had funded Everything that you just described it sounds to me was funded by money that you saved aside you socked away for two years of working at a job that you basically hated
1: that's right, so you know we grew up in a household where that that was a fantasy, you know, having some sort of magical nest egg, you know not to say my parents you know are you know were extremely supportive, and they would have no doubt uh helped me fund this if they could if, if they could and if we needed it. Um, I personally did not want to have that as part of the So part of the experience for me, in, in terms of the general sort of, I guess, experience that I wanted to have, this was part of it. Uh, doing it on my own. So making the extra steps of saving my own money and going about my own planning. And even when I got there, I remember um, <laughs> I stayed at, you know, what, Korea very, um, I, I guess, calls like love motels. They're like $40 a night, like <laughs> love motels because I was trying to save every penny that I had because I did not want to have that call to be like, okay, I, I need help. You know, that was a big thing for me mentally. So I, I thought through as far as I could. So, yes, I, I did not have, let's just say, that level of support not to say that it wasn't afforded to me if i asked for it i just didn't want that to be part of the experience
0: i want to go back a little bit now because we're talking about you know support in terms of having parents who however reluctant they were to see you off were able To help you if absolutely necessary. You, as you mentioned, had at least a conversant knowledge of the language, so you weren't completely isolated in that way. You had family there, you had our aunts, who I know would have absolutely welcomed the opportunity to have you stay in their homes. But those are sort of, like I said, practical arms of support. I wanna go back to just like kind of your inner support. You know, what I always refer to as like that person that you go back to when you feel like you're second-guessing your decisions or you're thinking about, am I going to win or am I going to lose here? And even going back further than college, all the way back to when you were uh, elementary school – I think there's oftentimes this stereotype about Asian people that we all do really, really good in school. And therefore, by the time we you know, are graduating from college, we have a track record of medals and honors and dean's lists and all those things to give us that inner confidence that we need to make bold decisions like leaving your job for Korea. Is that what your experience was like? Did you live up to that, quote, model minority idea of having this track record? of academic and scholastic success?
1: No, none whatsoever. (laughs) And, you know, I, I do wholeheartedly understand that perspective and that track. And not to say that I was free of that expectation. I just never really kind of followed it. So I would classify my experience in relation to that stereotypical track of, you know, being a model student, I was never what I would say like a trouble student. I just did not excel academically to the degree in which I hold that stereotype. I didn't really care that much about it. And I actually think about this a lot because you and I are so different in this frame where you are just, you know, crushing everything academically. And I think a lot more about it now from an expectation standpoint. I think our parents had much higher expectations from you when it came to that sort of stereotype. And I understand that now as a parent, you know, as, a, as you know, having a firstborn, you know, there's just, I think, a stronger sort of focus there. With me, I grew up way more coddled, you know. Um, you know grandma took care of me, like, throughout my early childhood and beyond. And it was more just like, I didn't necessarily have that pressure. And it's not to say that I had a free ride. There are definitely some expectations that I had to meet. But I always felt as though that whatever I came home with academically was all good. You know, it wasn't going to, there wasn't going to be any major upheaval if I didn't get straight A's. And once like C's became normal, you know, there there wasn't really much of a conversation for me in terms of, well, do I need to change anything here? So I think your experience is going to be quite different from mine. So I, I I would say that I had almost the opposite sort of experience in relation to that stereotype, and it's really kind of I think shaped the direction that I went, as well as I guess the way that I went about decision making when it came to. Things around school and um, career
0: path. How did it shape that decision making process?
1: Well, I, I think based on the academic sort of history that I had, it comes back to well, I'm not interested in this. So why would I want to try and do well in this? You know, there's really no point in this because I have no interest. So getting by with the C was totally fine because. I had no real sort of thought of using this in any way. So when it came down to the way that I've always looked at decisions around what I wanted to study or the type of jobs that I wanted, it was always very selfish. It was very much based on what I enjoyed because that's just what I knew. And everything else was just kind of white noise. You know, you just kind of did to get out the way. Nothing that I would pursue. So I just never had that sort of mentality that, oh, even though that I have no interest in I have to do wellness. It just did not exist at that time. So I think it really did lead to the decisions like, well, that I'm just going to study general psychology because that's what I can stomach right now. And well, I'm going to go to Korea because I find that interesting. So I think in a way, that sort of more liberal approach that I had and the experience that I was afforded actually helped in terms of making some of those bigger decisions. I almost worry that if I was a lot more focused academically and I had a really good track record of getting straight A's and I had all these opportunities, I, I don't think I would have made it to Korea. I think I would have probably been so pressured, hey, you've worked hard up to this point. Why would you do something like going to Korea? I probably would have would gone just the track of study something like economics in undergrad and and go to law school or something. I don't know. You know, I I I think I would have felt like I owe it to myself because I did work so hard. Whereas in for me, I just felt like, yeah, this makes sense. This sounds like fun. And, you know, if it doesn't, it's all good. In a way, I almost feel as though the atypical approach uh, that I was that I had the opportunity to kind of have growing up actually helped some of the bigger decisions that have been influential in terms of where I went with my life.
0: What I find so interesting is your description of what you found so fulfilling about teaching in that classroom, which was that you basically got to carve something out of a chunk of wood, like a driftwood that you pick up off the ground or something like that. And at the end of the day, you get to stand back and say, I did that. I can take ownership of that as opposed to what I often felt like, especially in the earlier days of my career in law, which is you get to see one sheet of paper right. out of an entire book and not even a you know, piece of paper. You can write one sentence out of this entire book and that's it. You, you get ownership of this. You got the whole book, basically, that you got to write every three months. How much of that ultimately taught you about writing the much larger book of your own life and your own career?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a big question. The, the short answer is a ton. And it, it really did translate into beyond the classroom, of course, because it really did give me that sort of direction around how I wanted to shape who I was going to be, not only from a career standpoint, but from just the way that I, I mean, I knew early on that work was going to encompass 90% of my entire existence, you know, and I think that's, you know, a pretty common expectation for, let's just say, Americans in modern day. And that really kind of accelerated a thought around, well, let me be intentional about this and the, the way that I want to pursue not only things that are going to impact my career, but just the way that I live my life, that I do have the opportunity to have more skin in the game when it comes to what I'm doing and that i have some sort of meaning at the end of the day again i think i'm i think i was kind of op, like overly optimistic because i recognized it is very hard to have jobs like that and i think the norm is what you had described you know you get your sentence and that's it and i think that's how most jobs kind of are but i was very focused on if i can to kind of continue down this path of pursuing opportunities and life endeavors that did give me the opportunity to be a lot more influential and a lot more involved with the end product if that helps.
0: I think what I'm really fascinated with and we could spend so much more time on this space in your life in Korea but I definitely want to move on to you know what some might think are the more interesting parts. I find this so interesting, but I do want to just talk a little bit more about how you derived that confidence to not just go to Korea on a one-way ticket, because, you know, we've already talked about how fraught that decision was, but how to take the reins of a classroom and ultimately your career, knowing that you were shaping these young people's lives and ultimately your own at such an early – I mean, you were in your early 20s at that time. It wasn't like you were 35 years old. But I guess because from the standpoint of me looking in as your older sister – I'm seeing this young kid, especially through junior high, who's oftentimes skirting the law and getting into trouble all the time. And, uh, you know, my parents are thrashing their heads trying to figure out what is the secret to unlock Jason's ambition and and drive. And why is he always getting into trouble and hanging out with these hooligans? And, you know, all he does all day is hang around the house. And, you know, so like there were a lot of questions about, is this kid ever going to make it out? Like, what's he going to do? And looking back it's actually like a little bit of a miracle that you not only had the gumption to to make this decision to leave the country, leave your family behind, quit your job, and then to take on a a career that did require an obscene level of confidence in some ways. How, How did you manage to channel all of that Notwithstanding the fact that I'm sure at so many times during your earlier life, you were told either explicitly or implicitly, dude, you're destined to fail.
1: Yeah, I think miracle is probably the best way that I describe it to you. And I want to be clear. It's not like I had all of this in my mind. Uh, This is all kind of speaking in retrospect. To be honest, I kind of went in blind and I was afraid and I was expecting failure. And I did not have a lot of thought about how I can mitigate that. It was just really kind of jumping in. And, you know, when I think back on it, I think the, the main sort of driver that, I guess, pushed me to make like the biggest decisions, one, going out there, getting that ticket and doing it, and making sure that, you know, in a job that I was extremely intimidated to do well in really comes back down to the environment that I put myself in. When you don't have a lot of those things that make you complacent, like all of my friends who are amazing, and I love them, and my family, of course, I love them, you're in a way free to really kind of explore different dimensions of who you are as a person. And I would say I took the extreme route. I, I kind of forced those things out of my life, and that was buying that one-way ticket. And going there, because I did not know anybody outside of family that I wasn't really close with, but, you know, I quickly had to move out to my own place and reestablish myself socially, which was not easy. But I think that really kind of opened up a door of, okay, let me think about what I want to make this experience be. And I was able to focus a lot more on, let's just say, my own personal growth. And I took that sort of freedom, which again, I didn't know would happen, and I applied it to the position that I was in. I think you and I are the same. When we're faced with intimidating challenges, our mo is to overprepare, you know, just be as prepared as humanly possible, even though you know this is not your area of comfort. And I just doubled down on that um, my first kind of semester. I did everything humanly possible just to prepare for every scenario. And I was frankly surprised at how much I enjoyed it and how well I did. I thought I'd be awful. And I think that's such an important sort of part of, let's just say, human development when it comes to surprising yourself at the things that you've, for no reason, stereotyped, I'm not going to be good at this. But when you actually try it, you say, actually, I'm pretty good at this and I actually like it. And I think that was a Big takeaway that was that kind of first three months in country that only happened because I didn't have those excuses of, well, I'm just going to put this off and I'm just going to hang out with my friends. And I didn't have the guts to go in completely unprepared. I, I do take work seriously and I didn't want to fail. So I think just that laser focus, that first few months of really understanding this is going to be tough. But doing everything I could to prepare was a big part of what helped me gain that confidence early on because definitely didn't have it when I first made the decision. And I didn't anticipate that I'd have it at any time, to be quite honest with you.
0: Let's fast forward then. You're there for five years and you ultimately decide, okay, I'm finally returning to the United States and and we don't have to spend too much time on this, but what was that decision? Like, how come you didn't decide, I'm just going to stay in Korea forever and just live my life here and build a career here in South Korea after achieving what I think many people would assume is, like you said, miraculous success?
1: Well, I'll, the, the thought definitely came to mind. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't ever think of that scenario. I did because I enjoyed it. It paid me well. and. There wasn't a lot of reasons to leave, especially considering how much I enjoyed it and the reputation I I kind of built with the company that I was at. You know, when you grow up, I had a little bit more responsibility. I had a fiance. I had to start thinking of, of things that I didn't necessarily factor in when I first made the decision to go out to Korea. And as much as I loved it, I was contract labor. So every year I had to renew my contract and even though that was never an issue, I had to play the long game of well, what if they didn't re-up my contract uh, one year for whatever reason? And
0: like the company could go belly up, right, or right. yeah, or
1: maybe they were looking at a different direction with the uh, different types of teachers that were coming in from all over the world. And I mean, I I that that put me in a place where I really had to think about well, what's next? And it wasn't the most comfortable sort of thought and definitely pushed it out as far as I could. But ultimately, I had made the decision that this was great. And in a way to kind of spin this in a, in a I guess, continuous learning avenue was, well, what can I do next with what I've been able to kind of learn about myself and really build up from a skill standpoint and apply that in a different avenue?
0: Well, take us through that. I mean, what what did you ultimately do to 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 answer that question? Because that is the point. Like that is the fascinating question. How did you decide? What am I going to do next with everything that I've learned?
1: Well, much to my mo at this point, I came back to Chicago without answering that question, <laughs> uh, and even more irresponsible, I brought a fiance with me. Uh, so pressure was truly on, and. I think the instinct was, well, if I've enjoyed teaching this much, maybe that's the route to go when I get back to the US. And I'd done a little bit of research and I was already slowly preparing to go back to grad school to get a master's degree in education and go down that teaching route. I'd say about a week in back in Chicago, I remember staying at you know Amanapa's house. That plan quickly evaporated because well, number one, I realized quickly that teaching in Korea and teaching in the United States were quite different. And my expectations and what I was looking for didn't necessarily align. And number two, I just felt as though I've done that, you know, and and, and as awesome as it was and as, as as it is, I kind of felt like I owed it to myself. Well, is there anything else that I want to explore that could help stretch these legs even further, maybe outside of the classroom. And that was something that I didn't know the answer to at the time, but was a driving factor in terms of exploring other avenues outside of the classroom. It was not an easy few, I'd say, months of kind of searching for that answer, especially because, again, I've kind of put myself back in that very precarious situation where, hey, I'm living with my parents again. They're asking me what I'm going to do. My answer is, and I don't know, you know, whatever money I saved is being burned by the second and got this fiance who is not familiar with this country at all. You so know, So your
0: fiance was from Korea?
1: From Korea and super supportive, but I could just tell that the slight, slightest bit of worry in her eye would just exponentially increase the, the, the stress that I had in terms of what am I going to do? And that was a very difficult time. And it was one that I almost took the road again of, well, whatever will take me, I'll just have to do. And I was very quickly about to go back into that. Well, you know what? A job's a job, pays the bills, gets me out of this terrible situation, and I could actually provide for my family. And I was very close to getting there. And ultimately, things kind of went a direction in which I was afforded more time. Mainly because you took us in, <laughs> and uh, it's it's an important part. It was a major part in terms of just this lifeline that was afforded to me, that gave me more time to kind of think about what I wanted to do next.
0: Well, I just want to step back here because you, you call it a terrible situation, and I think for a lot of listeners, people, are like, what are you talking about? You got to live with your parents. You didn't have to pay rent. You, you know, so and I understand that you had pressure from your brand new fiance, who's new to the country, but maybe describe a little bit, what was that cultural situation at home with your parents? And in particular, you know, did you feel responsible at all to your fiance's family? Because you basically picked her up out of their home and brought her all the way here to America.
1: I felt extremely responsible and You know, again, I don't want to paint a picture that, you know, my parents, you know, I'm on opera. They're great and they were super supportive. But you have to understand, I was coming from a place where I was completely independent and I was in a position that I loved. I was making more than enough money to live very comfortably in a in a fun place to quickly go back to having a lot of I don't knows and. Being with parents who lovingly look at me in a way saying, Hey, what are you going to do? was a lot to kind of take in. Even though I totally understand, Hey, I'm again so privileged to have this support sort of net to hold me here. I had a lot of internal pressure that I wanted to make sure that not only to my parents, but my fiance and the, the people that were around me that I had answers to these questions, even though no one would necessarily push me to have one immediately. I just personally felt as though I need to figure something out because it just put me in a state of I'm just really uncomfortable not knowing what's next.
0: So when you say terrible situation, I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, terrible because of external things. It sounds more like it was terrible because of the internal turmoil that was going on at that time of just, like you said, the I don't know's kind of adding up and also in a space where you felt like you didn't have a lot of time to really answer any of the I don't knows, like the clock was ticking. I, I remember very vividly, daddy was breathing down your neck like every right. second. Oh my gosh. And cool. I do think a lot of it had to do with the fact that you were a boy and you had brought a girl back with you. <laughs> and they felt like, all right, well, you made this decision to become an adult really quickly. So you, you got to prove that you're an adult by figuring out what your future was? Definitely
1: internal. I think there were components of it that were external that I internalized, if that makes sense. So, of course, just personally, I felt uncomfortable. I also was worried, well, you know, what do my parents think? What do my friends think about, you know, me just kind of chilling right now? I, I think that's such a very real part of this period in life that everyone has to go through of just a friend casually asking, hey, how how you been? What have you been up to? Was such a terrifying kind of thing. I didn't even go out because I didn't want to have that conversation. Even though there's no ill intent behind it, just being faced with that was always just this reminder of, to me, okay, what are you doing? You're not doing anything. And there's people looking at you right now, kind of scratching their head of like, what's next for you? And remember, it's not just you. You have other people now that are going to be reliant on the decisions that you make. So that was a major part of this experience that in a weird way brings me back full circle to, well, what do I do? I've had this fantastic experience where I was able to have autonomy and this position that I loved. And I embraced this sort of thought around, hey, I'm going to always do something that I'm passionate about and and that I enjoy. Very quickly, in a matter of like a month, be like, well, maybe that's not reality anymore. And I have to go figure out something and go back to the road that I avoided for the past five years, but ultimately dragged me back.
0: So you moved in with me, uh, which was, I know you say that it it was a lifeline for you, but in many ways it was a lifeline for me as well because I'm afraid of the dark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm afraid of the dark, was still afraid of the dark at that time of my life. And I had just moved out. I had just separated from my husband. I moved out into my own Apartment, it was my first time in my entire life at the age of what thirty five that I'd ever lived by myself, and I was so scared of turning off the lights in my house when I went to sleep <laughs> so Of course, I asked my brother to move in with me and my brother and and his then fiance and you did you know you spent about seventeen months living with me. How did you use that time? What did you do to answer all of those i don't knows that were plaguing you when you got back home.
1: So the reason why I call it a lifeline is because before I knew that this would be an opportunity. I had a discussion with a close friend of mine and he had recommended, "Hey, you know, based on what I know of you and the experience that you had, you should look into HR." And that was such a weird recommendation because I truly at that time had no idea what HR did. I always thought HR was this weird kind of office that just did admin work and I was like, "Uh, I'm not sure about that, but he had passed over a link to the graduate program at the University of Illinois, the School of Labor and Employment Relations. And I remember I was looking at it late at night, because I couldn't sleep, and I immediately was enamored by what it was saying and the type of things that an HR professional did. And I was kind of looking through the requirements. And it said, well, you need to take the GRE or the GMAT. And you know it's a competitive program so it wasn't one of these just check the box like you actually had to do well on it and that almost immediately derailed me from that path because i was more on well i need to figure out something quickly i have not opened up a gre book ever so it was almost a deal breaker at the time so when you called out of the blue to be like hey do you want to live with me i'm going to move to the city and i was like Well, maybe then this is an opportunity to find, let's just say, a job that can sustain me for a certain amount of time while being able to commit to studying for the GRE. So when we moved in, I got a job teaching English again for international college students. It was a blast. It was just a continuation of Korea in that that same sort of lane of just having really fulfilling work. It was part-time. And I really buckled down to study for the GRE. And I remember being very, very conscious about, okay, this is one of those times in life where for the betterment of all, you accept the help that's given to you. Because I think you and I are the same. We we, we don't really feel comfortable taking helping hands. But this was one of those where for the sake of making sure that I could best provide for those that relied on me, that I had to take this humbly and just be like, (laughs) okay, you know what? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the way that I'll repay you is that I promise I'm going to study really hard and I'm not going to screw this up. And um, yeah, I think we lived together for a little bit over close to about a year and a half. And I took the GRE I think about eight to nine months after we started moving in together, uh, I did good enough uh, to get accepted into the school, and that truly changed the trajectory yet again.
0: Just so that people can understand this a little bit better, I mean, I know in the very beginning we talked about your decision to study psychology in college was a very like kind of knee-jerk, like, hey, this is what I'm interested in, and you didn't really do much thinking or planning or real intelligence gathering around, well, what is the market like for somebody who graduates with a degree in psychology? Was it different the second time around when you decided to go into HR or was it more like, well, my friend thinks that I'd be good at it and and I kind of like working with people?
1: It was quite different. I was a lot more focused on what the actual positions would be post-graduation. When I was an undergrad, I did not question that one time of what a person with an undergrad degree in general psychology does i didn't care but for this i was very very curious to see what are the type of jobs that i do and i think that stems from working for the past you know 6 to 8 years and understanding that this translates into careers now and i was very interested in that i was also very focused on what the program would offer me so I did a lot more research into statistics around placement rates and what I'd expect in terms of salary, et cetera. And I wouldn't say that I completely eliminated the things that I'm interested side that drove me up to this point. It was still a very big factor, but I had a lot more thought around, okay, what's the return on investment here? Mainly because it was going to be a hefty investment. And because I felt as though that in terms of career direction, that this was going to be one that I wanted to stick with. So I wanted to be very sure about it. So I did a lot more research, both on kind of the practical side of where it would take me, but also very much on, is this the type of work that I want to do moving forward?
0: One of my favorite stories that you tell me about your ultimate decision to go into HR, which I think at the time, I remember when you told me you're going to go into HR and I'm like, what even is that? And like, really? Like that that's what you decide to do? Okay. Because again, I was still very much stuck in that traditional mindset of either you get an MD, MBA, or a JD. Right, right. And I, I selected JD, right? But one of my favorite stories is how you you got into University of Illinois, the L&E program, the labor and employment program, which for our listeners, if you don't know, is one of the best top rated programs in the country in L&E. So Jason is a little bit under selling how well he must have done on those tests, which again, I want to reinforce, Jason was not known for good test taking when he was growing up. So it only goes to show that later in life when he wanted to do it, he could do it. And so he he gets into University of Illinois L&E program. Talk to me about what that placement program was like. Getting a job, going to interviews, doing the job fairs, particularly in contrast to what it was like for the traditional MBA students that I think a lot of people are probably still tempted to to step their toe into.
1: Yeah, so one of the major driving forces in terms of going with this program was the very transparent information that they had around the blend between the academic experience that you'll have and the support that you'll have in terms of really kind of making a profession in HR. The program was fantastic in the sense that the school had such good relationships with these big companies. It's pretty incredible because I started in January of 2015 and by February, I was interviewing with Pepsi, Kraft, Boeing, Caterpillar, these huge companies, a month into my first foray into HR. I had no idea what I was doing. And it was shocking because they would come to our building, wine and dine us with food, beer, and they were so wanting us to join. And I couldn't help but ask, I was what about me is is appealing at this point? I don't know a thing. I've been here for a month, but it was all kind of predicated on the faith that they had in the program and the history that they have. And I think that was such a big part in terms of how I ultimately got into HR. And I specifically remember Pepsi took us out for beer and dinner and they brought their whole crew. They had their VP out there. And whatever we wanted, they were doing. And um, it was at a bar and the MBA students were like, which program are you in? And how, you know, how did you get Pepsi to just take you all out? Because when I interviewed with them, I had to go to the career fair and, and, you know, go up and give my resume and, you know, really ask. And I was like, well, we're part of the labor and employment relations program. And they're like, what in the world? Like, no one knows what that is. And when you try and explain, oh, we're, you know, getting a master's in HR, It's a a total head scratcher. I think that is real testament to doing a little bit of research can go a long way in terms of the type of support that you have. That's why I kind of said before, you know, had I gone, if if I were able to go, go back to undergrad and be a little bit more thoughtful about that, I think it would have been super helpful.
0: I love that story. So, I know we don't have a lot of time left. Your son, I, I can hear him. He's. Yeah, there's definitely a few. <laughs> there. The number of screams are coming much closer together <laughs> from that room. So, you graduate from the LE program successfully. You land a job at what many people would probably deem to be a dream company in many ways, your first choice. And ultimately, you are doing very well at your company, which I think is a very competitive program, and decide, hey, I want to start a YouTube channel. (laughs) And and at a time when you're also still trying to earn your stripes at your very new job, can you take us through what ultimately led you to decide, I'm going to start a YouTube channel now? And and back then, I mean, what year was that?
1: So my first video was actually produced in my very crappy... Apartment at the University of Illinois.
0: Oh, so you weren't—you didn't even have a job then,
1: right? I I was in my last semester, and um, I remember I filmed it then, and um, I probably posted it right around the time I was about to graduate. So that was the official sort of kickoff of the YouTube endeavor. You know, it's such a good question, and and it's, it's it's one that I'm always curious when I talk with creators, like what was the initial sort of prompt? Because it is such a weird decision, and. Honestly, when I think back on it, I think the first sort of important sort of, you know, I guess leg into the gateway here was back when I was a teacher, when I was living with you, I was teaching this class and it was a lot of fun. And I had a a decent camera that shot good video. And on a whim, I wanted to do some sort of filming of the students. And we were doing some sort of, you know, poetry class. And I had them read their favorite poems or something like that. And I recorded it. And that was like my first dabble with like video production. And I didn't know what to expect. I thought it would just be something I'd slap together and be like one of those crappy wedding montages or something like that. But when I got the footage and I immediately was kind of put in this creative realm of I could do whatever I want with it. I could, you know, score it the way that I wanted with the music. You know, I made a black and white and cut it up and I you know I made these transitions It immediately hit this part of my brain that ties back to that. Hey, I have that ownership from beginning to end, that raw piece of wood again, that I can completely carve up the way that I want to, if not more, because this was truly mine. There was no kind of handbook that I was using. This was just raw footage that I can put together. That was a big moment, I think, because I've always been of the mindset that you have to have that creative itch. In order to make it as a creator. Because if you don't have that, it gets really hard to do. And I think that was what really opened the door of okay, I started looking at YouTube videos differently from more of a production lens of, oh, okay, so this is what they're filming. And that really got me excited about it. And I remember um, my last semester of school, I had an offer to return back to the company that I had interned with. So that was already kind of in place. And I had this camera, and I remember. I had pre-ordered the Fitbit Alta for my wife, you know, and she was getting into health and everything like that. And I was going to be one of the earliest people to have hands-on with it. And I thought, you know what? Good opportunity to just give this a try. I took out the camera. I bought some really crappy $60 studio lights on Amazon and gave it a try. I remember I worked on that video for like months. You know, it took forever in the beginning, just learning everything. My computer was terrible. And even when I had it done, I let it sit for months. I couldn't press the upload button because there's just this unending question of like, why am I like, who's going to watch? This This is just dumb. You know, no one's going to watch this. This is just going to be stupid. And people are going to wonder why on planet earth am I doing this? But I kind of convinced myself by saying, make it a bucket list thing. People make fun of me. Cool. Could always be that weird friend that at one point or another made a YouTube video and we'll see what happens. And that ultimately, again, kind of, you know, with this expectation that it was going to completely flop and just be stupid, I was able to just be okay with myself being laughed at by just, okay, I'm fine with that. And I pressed the upload button. And surprisingly the video, I think with the timing and the newness of the product just kind of gained enough traction where you know, I would have been happy if 50 people I didn't know just watched it. I mean, that would would have been a miracle. And it just kept going up and up and up and up. And it really was at that point, just the total game changer in terms of, okay, this is so fun now. And this is just incredible. I, I like, I immediately understood like why people did this now, which was completely foreign, maybe like 30 minutes ago.
0: So back then, that was 2015 then, I'm assuming, right? Yes, So 2015, you upload, after several months of editing, production, and fear, you finally upload your very first video to, was it then called JSL Reviews?
1: I think so. I can't even remember because at the time, I was still learning the ecosystem. I didn't really fully grasp what YouTube was from a social media standpoint. I always thought it was just a place where, hey, if you wanted to memorialize a video, just upload it there and you can just kind of have it there. I didn't necessarily know like the planning around making a channel, uh, a dedicated sort of channel from a social media standpoint. So it may have been called something different at the time, but I remember it being one video on there on and and just one. So it looked really bare, you know, so it was like
0: <laughs> that one square, that
1: one square, that <laughs> was just out there. And I remember it going live and immediately being like, oh my God, I I was about to delete it. I was like, forget it, you know, this is just dumb. But I did have, uh, let's just say the guts to share it out on like my Facebook and stuff like that. And just be like, this is stupid, but if you wanna watch this, I made this, I don't know why. And um, I got an overwhelming amount of support from everybody, which was super helpful.
0: But that's really how it started. And it sounds like you got a lot more views than you probably expected as well. But when you say that you instantly understood why people did this when just a half hour before you really didn't right. understand why or why you even were doing this, I'm assuming that why had nothing to do with making money?
1: No. I, I don't even think I understood like what making money on YouTube was at the time. It was all about... Creating something that was your own, truly your own, and sharing it and people finding value from it. That was it. You know, and that 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 I immediately understood why people would go back and make more, you know, and, and do this again. Because after making the first one, I was like, that was it. I had no plans on making any videos thereafter. It was gonna be this one solo project, more to see if people were impressed with the way that I filmed and and edited this video together. But once it started helping people being like, oh, this is great, I was gonna totally get this and this was super helpful. This kind of did two things. It gave me a very, very strong outlet for creativity that I didn't necessarily have growing up a lot. And it also gave me a very strong sense of satisfaction when it helped people Um, and it was addicting. It was just the most addicting feeling knowing that something that you worked hard to put together Is helping people across the globe that was the thing that drove me the money and the economics and what this eventually became i had absolutely no idea and that didn't become part of even the conversation until probably years later of course over time and as the channel grew and the more and more i did research i realized oh you can actually make money off this but in the beginning it was always about getting my work out there and sharing it with people and and to see if, if if people found value from it.
0: And when you say people find value from your channel, the channel is a tech review channel, right? It, it reviews things like Fitbits, which from our perspective now, it's like, well, that's a very old thing. But at the time right. was, you know, brand new, like nobody knew what Fitbits actually did. And, you know, I just saw over the weekend, you were videoing a phone that I've never seen in my life <laughs> that looks so strange. Is that something you always intended. Hey, I'm going to do this YouTube channel and just review basic gadgets and things that nobody's ever seen.
1: The the short answer is yes, in the sense that I was a fan of that niche already within YouTube. I found that niche fascinating. So you were a I, consumer of YouTube? I was before. a I was a big consumer but not understanding what it was cuz I remember while living with you I was looking to buy something and I always just used your plain Google search and just kind of looked at reviews that were written. And I looked on YouTube one time and I was like, oh, this is so much better because I can see it. I have a little bit more of an understanding of, you know, if this is the right thing for me. And I specifically remember watching uh, at the time an MKBHD channel. He's like the goat of, of tech reviews. I didn't know who he was. And I was like, oh, this was super useful. And I was like, man, thank you, whoever made this video, Mr. MKBHD. And then after I was done watching it, it kept recommending other videos that he had done. And I was like, who is this person? Why would he keep making these videos? It, like it did, it didn't register at that time. I was like, why would anyone just do that? But then when I started understanding that, you know, he's catering to someone who's a fan like myself, and I just binge watched everything. And I was like, oh, this is so fun because I am, you know, what I would consider to say kind of a techie person. And I have a lot of interest in that. So when someone was creating content specifically geared in that, it immediately put me in that frame of, man, if I ever did anything, it would be in this sort of framework. I don't think, again, at that early stage that I had any idea that I would do it continuously But as far as like dabbling and doing a video, it was immediately in that, let's just say, category of what existed at the time on YouTube.
0: So your channel, which I know now is called JSO Reviews, it appeals to, it sounds like, two kinds of audiences, which is, number one, the tech junkie like yourself who will binge watch 40 videos on every new tech gadget that's come out. But it also appeals pretty heavily to people like me, who's like, man, everyone's talking about this Apple Watch thing, and I don't know if I want it, should I get it? What What are the pros and cons? Is that also the audience that you're directing a lot of that information to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say it's almost like an 80-20 split. I think 20% of the viewers are your diehard techies, that it doesn't matter that They're never going to get this, that they're interested in learning about it. They want to know about it. They're immersed in the culture around where technology is going. And they're fans of the content generally. But that's like 20% because I think that's a very, again, like niche population. 80% of the views are likely coming from exactly what you said. At a moment in time, I'm interested in XYZ product and I want to be a more informed consumer. So I'm going to look this up. So I've always kind of said my channel is more of a Google search than it is like a dedicated influencer platform, you know, where I'm like, you know, have like diehard followers. I'm much more informative than I am branded in a specific direction. So I think I do definitely serve both where I do have amazing fans who are extremely supportive and very much embrace the same interest that I do and very much resonate with that in the content that I make. But I'm very much for the average Joe. And I actually make most of my videos with that lens of, hey, I am not a tech expert. I'm very upfront about that. I'm not gonna know what this AMD card does in comparison to this Intel chip or something like that. I go about it very much from hey, I'm a everyday consumer and these are the things I care about because I think these are the things that you're going to care about. And I think that's what kind of drives more of that disparity between 80-20 because mm-hmm. uh, the content is more geared towards the everyday folks that are looking for help, not necessarily overtly towards the tech enthusiast.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about what it's like being a content creator, a YouTuber, if you will, while also working at a very demanding job especially as kind of early on in your career path as you were I mean you hadn't even graduated from the program before you made that first video ultimately getting married having to provide for your wife and then also having a son <laughs> like doing all of these things that I think most people would you know collapse under the weight of all that pressure But then also finding time to continue growing this YouTube channel?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. And, you know, YouTube really became something that I didn't know that it would ever become that. So, in a way, I didn't have a lot of overt conscious decision making about the way that the channel has grown the way it is. It was like just like uh, a train that kept moving. And I was just more just trying to make sure that there was track for it to go on. And in the beginning, I remember just being like, "Well, you know what? I'm just going to make this many videos and see where it goes. And I had a, lo- a lot more time. Work was demanding, but I squeezed out every sort of free time that I had on the weekends. And I loved it because it was so much fun just getting behind the camera, filming, you know, putting together what I was going to say, doing the voiceovers again that creative part of me drove I'd say like 80 percent of what continued helped me continue with the video making process then when I got married and you know I was you know progressing in my career and my job got more demanding I was almost in a place and I'm sure you feel this too where you're like well God I'm exhausted but I have to you know social media especially YouTube it's fantastic but it very quickly kind of puts you in a place where you feel as though, like, I don't really have a choice anymore. If I don't do my weekly upload, then I'm going to either let down the people that are waiting or I'm going to derail the sort of train that I'm on. And it's terrifying. You know, it's just this constant sort of state of, oh my gosh, I, I'm almost obligated to do this. And as I grew, And I had opportunities to work with big companies and they're sending me out their newest phones and, or I'm partnering with a company and it's a sponsored post. I mean, you don't have a choice at that point. I mean, I've many nights where it's three in the morning and I'm trying to get this edit done just so I can meet the deadline. And it's still fun, but I, it's like, I, I, I suddenly have these moments where I'm like, how did I get here? And how am I, you know, where, where is this in terms of like, am am I enjoying this still? Or it's just this weird position to just suddenly be like, I'm still doing this and I kind of have to now without a lot of conscious decision of how I kind of got there. I will say it's still very much a challenge, especially when you have a a kid, because I'm super intentional about making sure that I can have the proper amount of time that I want to make sure that I'm giving to my family. Which, you know, as a social media person, it is tough to really kind of turn that off. Even when you're not filming You're always thinking about, okay, is this video performing well? Or what's my next video going to be? I really got to get on top of this. Oh, these sponsors are waiting on me. I got to do it. To turn that off is difficult. So it is definitely not what it was back in that crappy apartment where I had just ultimate freedom to work on my own timeline and everything like that. So it has evolved in a way that I would have never anticipated. It is very, very challenging to do, but I will say that it still offers that same level of satisfaction in terms of just being able to share what I do and to share it with the audience that has been so supportive. There's really nothing like it, you know. It's such an addicting feeling, and it's such a fulfilling uh, feeling that. It's it's what keeps me going, if if maybe that's the best way to put it.
0: I mean, at this point, uh, you know, having looked at the metrics of your channel and having talked to you about brand work and partnerships, I know you're making a significant amount of money off of your channel. Have you ever thought about quitting your day job and and going full-time content creator? I mean, coming from my own career and perspective, obviously, that's a question that I've had to consider. Have you thought about that?
1: Yeah. And I remember when you were in that sort of crossroad, you were a big time partner, major law firm, and your Korean vegan sort of adventure was going off the charts. And I remember talking with you because I think you had asked me, you know, what should I do? And I told you this, there comes a point where You can't do both anymore because unfortunately, what happens if you try and do both? I mean, you are exhausted. And I definitely have those moments where I'm just exhausted because I refuse to do YouTube work while I'm working, my regular day job. It requires every last ounce of attention. I I can't do it. So with that being done, I, I maybe have a few hours with my kid, I put him to sleep. And by then I'm just so physically and mentally tired. I'm like trying, I'm running on fumes by the time I get to YouTube. And I definitely have those moments where I'm like, well, is that sustainable? And unfortunately, if you don't make a decision, I feel as though both will suffer. You're not going to be a good lawyer because you're just going to be so tired. And you're not going to be able to take full advantage of the growth because you just don't allocate enough time to what's required for you to really scale up your social media presence. I don't think I'm there yet. And I'm, it's tough because I love my job so much. It is a major part of just the way that I get enjoyment and fulfillment. Plus, I will say that my risk profile has increased dramatically. I've got a child and it does make the decision a lot harder. And even though YouTube has been great financially, there's just so many factors that through going through this process that look, I'm like a pretty risk averse person. And when it comes to like the swings and the, the the variable nature, and honestly, just the mental health portion of trying to even imagine doing social media full time, there is such a divided sense of excitement and absolute terror, fear, because I always feel at one moment, it could just gone, it, it, it'll evaporate. And The thought of that is just, it, it puts me in a place where I can't immediately come to a decision. I will say that I think over time, if I continually grow, I think I will be faced with that fork as well. And I'll have to make that decision. But for now, I do feel as though it's okay to do both. I'm not that ambitious when it comes to scaling YouTube yet. I'm okay to just have it as what I'd consider more as a side hustle than it is like, a legitimate business or something like at this point. And that's okay. You know, and I'm totally fine with that. Should the day come though, I think that's going to be probably the next chapter of making a pretty tough decision.
0: What I love to hear though, and I remember asking this of you once before when I was really grappling with giving up my job as a partner and going full-time content creator. I think I was at that point that you were at two years out of college where you couldn't even face the prospect of coming back to the office for one more day. But it sounds to me that where you're at right now is a 180 degree difference from where you were back then, which is you love your job.
1: That is very true. I think in a way it'd be much easier if I was in that dreadful job that I had post-undergrad, I would have jumped a long time ago, probably. But I really, really do love what I do from an HR perspective. I get the same sort of fulfillment that I had talked about before when it comes to developing folks in a different avenue. And it's been so fulfilling that there's an element there that is not only associated with fear of failure, but fear of loss. To walk away from that, because it's been such a great experience. I've had such a fantastic opportunity to mine a different area, a different profession that I didn't know, again, that I'd be good at and that I enjoy. There's not a lot of reasons to walk away from it, especially when the other prospect is pretty risky, is the way that I classify it, even though I love it. And there's so much that I can think that I can do. If I had an additional eight to nine hours of the day like my, it's like a playground of like, oh, I would immediately do this. I would do that. So there is that excitement, but you're right. There is not a driving force on the negative that would, propel me to make one decision over the other because both are just fantastic right now.
0: Mm, and that's a great place to be. I think there's this fallacy that it's it's never a good thing to enjoy what you have in the moment, but it sounds like, hey, you worked really, really hard. You made some very bold decisions early in your life, and now they're paying off and, and these rich sort of dividends. And, and I don't mean necessarily financially, but it sounds like even mentally, spiritually, and every way, you get to enjoy both sides of the day, whether it's working your day job or doing your YouTube channel. And, and that's fine for the present to continue writing that out for as long as you think. But do you think that internally that eventually there will be something inside of you, that same sort of Jason that forced you to buy that one-way ticket, that forced you to say, you know what, I'm not going to do an MBA or a JD, I'm going to do something a little bit different, that ultimately led you to starting this tech channel on YouTube and pressing upload, even though you were terrified to do it at the time. Do you think that ultimately there's some point in the future, like you said, whether it's that fork or some even totally different third thing (laughs) that you're not even thinking about right Right, now, that will make you say, it's time to take another risk?
1: So I, th- the answer is I hope so, and I say that terrified, you know, because I think that's an indication that you're going in the right direction. At least that's kind of been my experience. So I've I've had enough self awareness to know that. As difficult as those circumstances are, they're usually a reflection that you're doing something right in terms of the career path that you're going down or the things that you're pursuing. The hard thing is, is that I think as you get older, the decisions get exponentially harder to make. But I say that I hope so because, again, I feel as though that that will mean that whether it be I'll go a direction where I can pursue greater opportunities within the sphere of HR or if JSL really does scale to a point where I can make it a viable enterprise to pursue as a full-time career those are great things. I think it'll be very difficult though to make that decision. But I you know I weigh that against what's the opposite. I stay stagnant in both and there's really just this continuation which is fine and in a way almost preferred because I know I can do it, you know, and I and I don't have to make a tough decision, but I feel as though then you know, I've really kind of lived out that ultimate sort of fear of because I didn't progress, I'm now left with a pretty moderate experience in both lanes. And I just feel as though that's a bit of a letdown personally.
0: It's so funny because they think that our parents were just so worried about, Jason doesn't have any internal drive, <laughs> like he has no ambition. But it turns out all along that the shape of that ambition and that shape of that drive may have simply been unrecognizable. To our parents who had a very traditional understanding of what that looked like. And certainly to me, that completely, you know, wholesale bought into that very traditional shape of ambition. And it sounds like it's much more a function of continuous growth, continuous challenging of purpose. What is that purpose? What is that fulfillment look like? And where are you going to derive that, even if? Ultimately, choosing to do so is a scary proposition.
1: I don't blame you know, our parents for having those worries because I didn't know it either at the time. It's not like I had this secret that, oh, I'm passionate, I'm just not telling you. I really probably didn't have it. Just the decisions that I made that put me in these environments helped me to realize it in real time. And I think in the aggregate, It's really kind of helped me get this perspective of hopefulness around these challenges now. But at the time, it was very much just a byproduct of just the way that we were raised to a certain extent. I don't want to make it sound like I knew everything was going to turn out this way. Absolutely not. And I feel lucky to have been able to be where I am. I think the the best way to describe it is that I really am excited for what may come next, even though it will be a pretty Difficult decision. Should I come down that road? I feel as though that my experience up to this point will help me make it. You know, I'm confident that it'll turn out the way that it's supposed to.
0: Well, I think there's no better way to end the podcast than with that wonderful period. Maybe it should be in ellipses because you never know. Dot, dot, dot. Well, thank you so much for joining me for my very first real podcast interview in my dining room. And I can hear Liam. (laughs) <laughs> is anxiously awaiting his time to leave the bedroom.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, let me let me just say this. You know, I I know we grew up in a household, or let's just say, kind of like a home culture where recognition was kind of conveyed silently or indirectly, the vast majority of the time. But I want to say that uh, I'm extremely proud of you and all that you've been able to accomplish with. Uh, the Korean Vegan. And I think that your commitment to your work, as well as to the things that you're passionate about, and to the supporters uh, that uh, support you is inspiring. And I wanted to say that, break tradition, say that as uncomfortable as it, you guys should see her, right? She's super uncomfortable. Uh, But I I think it was something that is important for me to say. So, uh, let me just wrap with that.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I, I am very uncomfortable <laughs> right now. My heart rate just yeah. went up like 15 beats. We,
1: we we can do a retake and I could just be like, thanks, Joanne. <laughs> Pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> well, Thank you very much, Jason. That is Jason Lee, my little brother, three years younger than me. And for those of you who have wanted to know and have been wondering where he works, can you tell us all where you work.
1: Yeah, I work for the Boeing company. Been there since I graduated from graduate school in 2016. And I'm in HR talent management. So I do early career development uh, for Boeing.
0: And again, what is the at for your YouTube channel in case there are people who are like, I don't know if I should buy that new phone?
1: Yeah, well, I should give a special shout out to the, uh, the Korean vegan fan base. They're awesome. Uh, I think you had mentioned me in one of your videos very briefly, and I immediately was inundated by notifications while on a meeting at Boeing <laughs> saying, are you the Korean vegan's brother? <laughs> so shout out to the, the awesome loyal fan base that you have there. The channel is JSL Review. And I could be found on YouTube.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And for everyone who loves my voice, as you probably could tell throughout the duration of this podcast, Jason's voice is his biggest asset on his channel. I've been watching it since before I started the Korean Vegan, long before I went vegan. So I can testify that it is truly a remarkable channel. He is one of the most talented content creators I know, certainly in the tech space. So definitely check it out. And thanks again for being here. Thanks, Joanne. updates and random things. I know, I should come up with a better title for this section of the podcast, but I don't have one right now. If you have any suggestions, please feel free to email me. But I will begin by reminding you that I have an upcoming live event over at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, my and my brother's alma mater, on September 23rd. Make sure to secure your spots now. I'll be doing a live cooking demonstration and If you bring a copy of your books, I promise I will be there to sign every single one of them. What I'm watching right now. Well, after finishing up Only Murders in the Building, a second time for Anthony's sake, we started watching a show called Blackbird on Apple TV. Based on true events, the story circles around a convict's attempt to extract a confession from a serial killer in exchange for a complete commutation of his sentence. Much darker, A little bit grisly, so I'm just giving you a warning and a heads up there. If you're not really into these grisly suspense, murder mystery type things, you might want to steer clear of this one. I, on the other hand, love a good serial killer murder mystery, and I thought this was really good. I felt very immersed in this and then afterwards went and Googled everything about this particular story. I also must mention we wrapped up better Call Saul a couple weeks ago. and it is, in my opinion, the best television show ever made. I said it. I believe it. It truly was a master class in what television can do, what proper and compelling storytelling can do. Of course, it particularly appealed to me because the story revolves around a lawyer, not the kind of lawyer I was, but still a lawyer. If you haven't watched it yet or you got stuck a season or two ago, I strongly recommend that you muscle through the whole show. It is a commitment, six seasons, and they are emotionally taxing seasons, but just so, so good. And the finale is well worth it. Just another reminder, international editions of The Korean Vegan. You can find a link to the French version, the German version, the Polish version, the Dutch version in the show notes below. This is your weekly reminder that, yes, I have a meal planner. It's called The Korean Vegan Meal Planner. It houses all my new recipes. This week, I will be adding the corn ribs as well as a very easy peasy end of summer recipe. It was a potato and corn salad that I sort of made up while driving in the car and it turned out so, so delicious. My parents who are staying with me in LA right now. They ate up every last bite. All right. Well, this was a longer episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast, but we're still going to do parting thoughts. And for this week's parting thoughts, I thought I would share with you a little snippet of what our lives are like back when Jason and Jung were living with me. Can you buy for me? was a phrase heard often around the apartment I shared with my little brother and his wife, Jung. My sister-in-law tossed around this shorthand for love me, please, like handfuls of bright cranes, inviting my brother to collect them while dishing out the remonstrations that his salary demanded. He was an ESL teacher while he studied for his GREs then placing them on the very broad mantle of his memory, so that when he got a real job and things got better, he would pick them off one by one and hand them back to her. In the evenings, I often liked to plop down on their bed to surf the web and listen to them grapple with newlywed life. Jason would be sitting at his desk, watching Naruto or scrolling through Facebook, and YJ would be lying in bed with me, similarly scrolling through Facebook. One evening, Jason and I happened upon the same article while scrolling, Six Toxic Behaviors That Push People Away. Jason read the article out loud to both of us, though YJ understandably paid little attention, and we launched into a discussion immediately regarding which of these poisonous, the word I used to define toxic for YJ, attributes the three of us most exhibited. We determined that Jason's propensity to dismantle public property or hurl four-lettered invectives that even I've never said out loud labeled him excessively reactive. And even YJ admitted that she had a tendency to believe that everyone hated her, which was the first of the six toxic behaviors, taking everything personally. Meanwhile, my addiction to approval, particularly from my parents, made me a dead ringer for needing constant validation. But YJ vehemently disagreed with my self-assessment, reminding us that I eschewed all my designer handbags for my free Foley bag, an old, ugly backpack that the firm gave me several years ago. Someone is obsessed with the material trappings of success, as the article described. Would never be caught dead in public wearing that thing, she concluded in the most deadpan imitation she could muster in Korean. This had me rolling on the floor, nearly in tears, It is during these moments when my mind is wrapped so securely in the gauze that only family can provide that i realize how few and precious these moments are and will grow to be though i am only three years ahead of my brother in age i've already been married and divorced i've already experienced the chest flattening firsts that attend exclusively first loves and this is nothing extraordinary However, what they cannot know is that I have gained a vantage that they have not. Looking back, I now know that far more indelible than the moments that Hollywood has deified, i.e. the first kiss, wedding night, five-year anniversary, are the ones that drift unnoticed into the blue-gray recesses, where they stack against one another like a library of love-worn books. First time she takes the wheel while Jason is gripping the dashboard of their Hyundai Sonata for dear life. First time he takes YJ's hand in his while strolling down North Avenue one particularly scalding August afternoon because he promised her a long walk the night before in a moment of regrettable infirmity. The time he explained to her with his trademark patience, a rhythm of speaking patented for natural-born teachers and fathers. Why the fog rolled so thick and lazy over Lake Michigan. How Americans preferred running over speed walking. How ketchup was most unwelcome on a proper Chicago hot dog. I sometimes feel like I'm living my life backwards. Jason and I spent the latter half of the evening debating the merits of two people merging to form one. He calls me a cynic. I call him a romantic. I don't believe merging is ever a good thing, and he thinks it can be especially when the two minds are too fragile to survive alone. I don't think frailty should be a prerequisite for soulmatehood. I believe the opposite. Self-sufficiency is the most vital ingredient to a successful relationship. It's easy for me to tout the above, to type these words into my journal, to fling them at my brother with all the surety that inheres to my nuna status. But I often wondered whether I allowed myself to disappear too much in this home. Whether I was growing complacent with merely sitting in their backseat collecting all their precious memories as if they were my own. I was single back then and terrifically frightened that I would never find a love that consumed me in the way that my first love had. But even as I sit here today typing away at my kitchen table, one my brother sat at just a few days ago while my husband Anthony entertained Liam. I thank God for that blue-gray chapter in my life with Jason and YJ, where I could watch from the backseat as two people bickered and pulled each other apart in a manner more loving than I could ever remember seeing in my own lost love, without having to be concerned in the least where we were all headed. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you found this particular conversation especially inspiring, I encourage you to share it with your friends, your family, your loved one, your colleagues, or even on social media. And with that, until next week, I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day.